Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, Case Management Strategies for Patients with ADPKD, Part 2, is jointly provided by Novus Medical Education and Medical Education Resources. And this activity is supported by independent educational grants from Atsuka America Pharmaceutical Incorporated. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, and uh, welcome to the webcast uh, titled Optimizing the Care for Patients with ADPKD, and this is based on Case Management Strategies, Part 2. Uh, I'm uh, Fred Robari. I'm a professor of medicine at Emory University in Atlanta, and uh, we're going to review um, several common patient cases and provide insight into practical evidence-based and standard care management strategies to help achieve optimal care for patients with ADPKD. Uh, before we get uh, started, um, let's review uh, the learning uh, objectives. And um, uh, the first one is to discuss standard of care strategies to manage chronic kidney pain in patients with ADPKD. Uh, second one is to mitigate uh, excessive polyuria uh, in patients with ADPKD or treated with tolvaptan. And uh, the third one is to summarize strategies for managing transaminitis in patients with ADPKD who are treated with tolvaptan. Um, we'll start with the case uh, number one that I call uh, a painful journey. Uh, so this is a 40-year-old lady uh, with PKD uh, and uncontrolled hypertension uh, since the age of 18, um, preeclampsia, mitral valve prolapse, headaches, and dyslipidemia. And I got to know this patient uh, around age of 40. And from the uh, point of uh, our first contact, she uh, was complaining about flank pain, and uh, had a um, couple of uh, episodes of U- uh, UTIs over uh, a year and a half, uh, typically to E. coli treated by um, antibiotics, macrolides. And um, um, the level of pain was increasingly um, uh, going up uh, over years. And um, at the first uh, beginning year, uh, years, she was uh, well controlled on just uh, Tylenol heat pads, mostly at night, and also we had to apply for um, work accommodations for her not to uh, have to lift uh, children because she was a school teacher um, and uh, uh, also uh, giving her some time to uh, have extra stretching uh, uh, at school um, so her kidneys would uh, not hurt as much. Uh, But uh, with time, narcotics were started with dose escalation and the pain was increasingly disabling her to uh, to be comfortable and do her, her work and also in her sleep. Um, so by the time that uh, she was about 42 uh, of age, um, we got to the point that uh, I uh, approached her for um, interventional strategies of uh, maybe cystic roofing or cystic aspiration. And uh, we, we did the MRI of her kidneys, and as you can see on the images, so the the top images uh, are all um, T2 uh, uh, acquisition uh, sequences. Uh, the top parts are coronal uh, um, images, and the uh, bottom two uh, pictures are the um, axial um, pictures. And you can see that uh, there are um, several cysts in each kidney that are lighting up in white and T2 acquisition 
image and, um, and there were uh, multiple of them and um, her pain was mostly in the back. Uh, when we did, the, at the age of 42, when we did the CAT scan to decide to do the um, cyst aspiration, which, is, which was finally her choice, uh, it was very obvious that the area that she was hurting was primarily on the right side uh, with a major prominent cyst. And when uh, we did the cyst aspiration on that side, uh, literally on the table, she had a major and dramatic improvement in her level of pain, and she was very happy with, uh, with the results. So this was in March. Uh, she comes back about three, four months later, complaining of uh, contralateral uh, pain. Um, uh, again, you know, the area of the pain was a pre- pre- predominant cyst on the left side this time, and we um, decided to go for less uh, left cyst aspiration uh, with the doxycycline uh, injection after that. And again, uh, very quickly and dramatically, she improved uh, uh, with her pain level right after the procedure. Uh, this goes on for a few months, and now we're in, sept- I mean, in December, uh, so about you know, six months later than, than the previous uh, procedure. And at this point, uh, her pain was again more predominant on the left side, and we uh, said, we're going to go and... Um, do another procedure. She underwent the procedure, and um, what happened right after that, within 30 minutes, she started having uh, shortness of breath, hypotension, tachycardia, and uh, the chest X-ray showed a major um, left-sided hemothorax that you can actually uh, see on the chest X-ray on the left side, and uh, the CT was clearly showing that there's a large um, um, hemothorax uh, on the on the left side, and one week after that, she was uh, obviously she was put in the ICU and was under care. And originally, we didn't want to uh, um, touch that uh, um, amount, that large amount of blood that was sitting in her left lung, because we were worried about uh, the the bleeding uh, resuming again. But um, uh, within a week, unfortunately, she went to the point of uh, collapsing her lung and needing. Uh, CT surgery and uh, basically um, taking all the clots out of uh, the left lung. And uh, uh, finally, after that, she did well, uh, thankfully. And um, her um, her dramatic uh, um, episode there resolved within a couple of months without the sequela. Um, the natural history of this uh, this lady was that over the following four years, the pain continued to take a toll on her daily life. Um, uh, repeated imaging studies showed that the um, aspirated cysts have come back and um, because of the dramatic complication that she had before she decided not to pursue any other procedures and the pain management was uh, um, moved from uh, short-acting narcotics to long-acting narcotics such as oxycodone I'm sorry, oxycontin from uh, hydrocodone to oxycontin and um, this was helping her as far as the pain, and also her blood pressure was going up, and she was in a lot of pain, so the blood pressure also improved. Um, And over the following 11 years, by age of 51, uh, she underwent a um, a kidney transplant, um, and the negative kidneys uh, were removed a couple years later after she uh, had received her transplant. Um, So this is a very... um, uh, Interesting, fairly typical for the beginning 
of the presentation, but atypical in the complication that she had uh, majorly at the third uh, cyst uh, aspiration. And um, the pain management strategies that uh, this patient went through, actually she went, she used several of these strategies uh, along the years. And um, um, the problem with the kidney cyst uh, size and pain is that the correlation, even though it exists, is not perfect. So there are people who have very large cysts and not a lot of pain, and other people have um, small cysts and they have a lot of pain. Um, so uh, if you see that somebody has an, what, what I call an overall pain syndrome, if they have IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, fibromyalgia, chronic uh, nonspecific body aches, um, hypochondria, conversion disorders, if you see that set up, I do not usually recommend um, a procedure because just by doing a procedure, you're increasing their nociceptive uh, signals, and that basically increases the level of pain without really taking care of the um, the, the kidney pain. Um, and uh, if you always try to start with non -in non-invasive, non-pharmacological um, uh, strategies, uh, um, ice massages, heat padding, um, uh, whirlpool, and the Alexander technique, which is basically how you position your body to reduce the amount of uh, pain uh, on your kidneys when you're sitting and you're uh, moving around. Uh, and also sometimes psychological behavioral modifications can be used. Then um, the next line would be typically non-opioid -opio medications, and uh, Tylenol is the safest for the kidneys. NSAID and salicylates uh, have been used, but we know that they can cause uh, kidney dysfunction in some patients, and uh, COX-2 inhibitors in the same level. Uh, tramadol, clonidine also have been uh, used, um, although clonidine has a notorious uh, um, side effect of brain fog or um, risk of hypotension if patients are not uh, hypertensive. And then we move to opioid uh, management. Uh, and obviously the ma major issue there is the risk of dependence and tolerance. There are short-acting and long-acting um, uh, opioids, and you can uh, use adjuvant uh, strategies such as gabapentin, amitriptyline, um, pregabalin for uh, enhancement of the pain uh, uh, management. Um, then we move into um, intervention-based um, uh, procedures. Um, uh, acupuncture has been used. Transcutaneous electrical uh, nerve stimulation has been used in PKD. Uh, spinal cord uh, uh, stimulation with neuromodulation has been used. And then um, neuroaxial opioid and local anesthetics, uh, uh, celiac nerve uh, a plexus nerve block um, that has been more recently used are effective in patients who have very chronic and severe pain. Um, uh, as far as the cyst aspiration, uh, the criteria are relatively fairly um, uh, robust. If you uh, take exactly like this patient, uh, somebody who has predominant cysts exactly where they hurt, uh, if they point out with a finger that my back is hurting and right there there's a large cyst that is usually three to four centimeters large at least, then your success rate is very high and if they don't have that subset of um, pain syndrome. Otherwise, uh, if it, all the cysts look the same and the pain is diffuse, you, you will not be successful in controlling the pain. And then um, uh, more advanced cyst decortication, marsupialization, cyst roofing, uh, those are more complex surgical, laparoscopic, typically, uh, surgeries. 
And um, um, sometimes you may have a uh, non-healing wound that would be oozing uh, fluid. And um, um, then ultimate uh, treatments are renal denervation or nephrectomy that we typically really take uh, to the last, last chance. So this case basically summarizes uh, all, almost half of these strategies for pain in one single patient for pain management um, it's uh, it's a very uh, illustrative case for these uh, patients. Uh, case two, um, uh, moving along, uh, is a case of polyuria on tolvaptan, and um, uh, we uh, I call it as how bad can it get? This is a uh, real world case, a 35 year old Caucasian male who's very tall, six four tall, weighing 280 pounds, uh, and has hypertension and PKD, and treated with uh, one single medication, lisinopril. And she, he comes, and uh, we start uh, tolvaptan in the, uh, with increasing doses. At uh, the first dose of 45 plus 15 milligrams, the urine output was about 6 liters. At the middle dose of 60 plus 30, we were basically dose titrating. Uh, urine output was up to 7.5 liters. And by the time we were at the maximum dose at 90 and 30, urine output was about 10 liters. Um, uh, also along that way, uh, his blood pressure started going up uh, um, by about eight to nine points you know, uh, uh, in uh, millimeter of mercury, uh, reaching about 135 to 80, uh, over 85, and this is unusual for this patient. Uh, he's also a CEO of a company, and now he has to go to the bathroom pretty much every 45 minutes to an hour, so uh, he had to cut back on his uh, meeting times uh, to less than 45 minutes. Creatinine was relatively stable during this time, uh, from 1.3 to 1.4, which was not a major significant uh, rise. And we were happy with the kidney function. So the question becomes, uh, what do you do with somebody who is uh, um, urinating 10 liters a day? That is usually, if you're at that point, is almost going to the bathroom somewhere between 16 to 20 times a day. So th- this is really excessive. To get back to the data that was uh, generated during the phase one trial of uh, tolvaptan, um, you can see on this uh, image, uh, the study A was basically just a single oral dose, and they were trying to see what the um, maximum urine output is over 24 hours. And you can see that the, with increased dose from um, uh, 15 milligrams to 120 milligrams uh, single dose, the urine output went from 5 to 10 liters. Again, this is just one single, drug, uh, one single dose of the drug. And then uh, we had five um, uh, uh, days of uh, chronic use of tolvaptan, and you can see that in th- that case, the, uh, the amount of urine output is actually less and it, it plateaus around 6 liters even at the highest dose. So there's basically a an effect that the urine output uh, attenuates uh, a little bit from the maximum of one dose. And this is very important to kind of remember that what this is what could happen. And this patient was really at the very, very high uh, end of the response. Um, so um, to put this in perspective, uh, the uh, polyuria um, counts for about 15% of all patients who are um, dropping out uh, uh, from tolvaptan. And um, also, it can disrupt sleep pattern. It can cause uh, worsening of hypertension. The strategies that have come by over the last several years to uh, mitigate and improve uh, uh, this excessive uh, urine output are, obviously, number one, if they're at the highest dose of uh, uh, tolvaptan, you can go on a lower dose, recheck the urine osmolality. If they're still maximally diluting the urine, at least to a 
uh, your uh, osmolality of less than 250, ideally even lower than that, then you can kind of say we will get the same benefit and keeping them on a lower dose. If you're already on the lowest dose and you still have an excessive uh, um, uh, urine output, then you can... Um, uh, complete a 24-hour urine and uh, see what uh, uh, what their uh, sodium excretion is, which is basically a reflection of how much salt they eat. If their salt intake is excessive, you educate them um, about uh, limiting their salt intake. And then more recently, uh, hydrochlorothiazide has been uh, suggested to be added to this regimen. So the effect of uh, hydrochlorothiazide was uh, um, formally assessed by the Dutch group, um, and uh, they basically try, uh, designed a trial of hydrochlorothiazide and metformin and placebos at three arms, and uh, uh, the patients uh, were also on tolvaptin uh, on the uh, hydrochlorothiazide and metformin um, uh, arms. And as you can see, um, the amount of urine output was decreased in the group that was on hydrochlorothiazide compared to placebo. Placebo was 6.34 liters, uh, hydrochlorothiazide 5.13 liters. Um, and uh, as a uh, consequence, also the GFR was uh, slightly lower in the hydrochlorothiazide group, 51 versus 55 in average. But uh, plasma copeptin, uh, which is an uh, indirect marker of vasopressin, uh, uh, levels uh, is actually uh, was also lower in the hydrochlorothiazide group uh, um, compared to placebo, and that basically shows that vasopressin is adequately uh, suppressed in that case. So you could uh, potentially uh, use this strategy uh, to um, um, mitigate the the excessive urine output and make patients more comfortable so they can stay on the drug and get the benefit. Uh, the last cases uh, are actually two cases in one, and I put them side by side to kind of compare what's different and what is the difference in strategy. The first case is a 43-year-old uh, male with PKD, started on tolvaptin four weeks ago, and as you know, with the REMS uh, um, requirement, you, you have to do a, a, a liver function test um, two weeks and then every four weeks. And uh, he's up to 60 and 30, goes to um, a party over the weekend, has six beers, and then shows up uh, to the lab uh, on Monday uh, for his four-week um, checkup. And the LFTs that were originally normal are uh, now ASTs up to 120, ALT up to 130, right under that uh, times three normal uh, cutoff, but bilirubin and alkaline phosphatase are normal. The second case is almost this uh, male of same age, 45 years, but this one has been on tolvaptin uh, 60 and 30 for four years without any major issues at all whatsoever, and liver function tests were all normal. And um, uh, comes to a regular follow-up visit, and all of a sudden AST is up to 150, ALT is up to 140. So now we have at least more than three times increase in uh, um, uh, transaminase, uh, transaminases, uh, but bilirubin and alkaline phosphatase uh, are still normal. Uh, he denies any alcoholic uh, intake, um, has been on uh, atorvastatin for four years, no uh, dose change. But his primary care just recently uh, added uh, um, uh, phenofibrate to his regimen. So that's uh, the only difference here. So what do we do in these cases? And the question is basically relevant to, uh, the questions are relevant to both 
cases, um, um, either we stop tolvaptin immediately, continue tolvaptin, ask the patient to go to a um, uh, lab, and then um, um, avoid, obviously, alcohol intake and uh, repeat LFTs in three days and see whether they're going up or not. Um, or uh, option uh, C would be to admit the patient to a liver transplant uh, center for pending hepatic failure or admit the patient to the ICU for what we call MARS therapy or molecular uh, absorbent um, circulating system or also called liver dialysis. Um, the uh, answer to this question, for, so in the, in the first case, so we have a patient who's still under the three times normal limit of increase, but it ha- happened very quickly. But there's, there was also alcohol intake. So we sent him back to the lab. And uh, three days later, now AST is up to 180 and ALT is uh, up to 160. At that point, um, again, bilirubin was still normal. So the, the trigger is to stop tolvaptin at that point and repeat uh, um, uh, AST and ALT and bilirubin um, regularly over the... Um, I did it almost twice a week on this patient. And we reached a peak of 741 for... AST and 634 um, ALT, and Birubin fortunately remained normal, and tolvaptan was never started, and NLT is normalized four months later. Um, in the case two, um, now uh, we had already reached the, the three times normal uh, AST or ALT, and we stopped um, tolvaptan, and also we were really worried about phenofibrate causing this because that was the last uh, added medication. And five days later, AST and ALT were um, uh, to 130 and 120, so slightly lower than um, than before. And within four weeks, LFT is totally um, uh, normalized. And two months later, we actually reinitiated tolvaptan without any problems, and he's been on it for years. Uh, so again, the, the the trigger point of when you stop medication because of uh, suspected uh, liver toxicity. Uh, is what uh, is called the Heis Law. And the Heis Law was defined by uh, Dr. Hyman Zimmerman, and he literally single-handedly defined what would be a practical approach to uh, drug uh, uh, hepatic toxicity. And uh, the take-home message is that if your uh, ALT and AST, either or, are more than three times upper limit of normal, and you have a concomitant increase in the uh, bilirubin more than twice uh, the upper limit of normal uh, without any findings of uh, cholestasis, uh, stones, gallbladder stones, and things like that. Um, in that case, you basically um, go to the high risk of uh, liver uh, toxicity and maybe you know, liver uh, failure, and uh, the prognosis would be bad. The mortality in patients who reach that is about 10%, and they need to be really in a liver transplant center for possible um, pending liver failure. And the um, um, uh, graph on the right is um, uh, the result from actually liver to- toxicity of tolvaptan. You can see that if you plot the uh, ALT uh, uh, versus uh, peak total bilirubin, the um, uh, high-risk patients are the ones who are in the right upper corner, uh, the, the, th- the four uh, quadrants that you have, the right upper, and you can only see that in the tolvaptan trial, there was only two of those. Um, and those are really the people that you need to watch very, very carefully. The ones who are below uh, three times normal, 
uh, on uh, ALT um, and uh, below two times normal in bilirubin, they're at low risk of progressing to uh, uh, liver failure, and that's the low left uh, quadrant. Um, so this is really uh, important to know, and you have to really follow the rules, and also you have to report, if you had liver toxicity, you have to, by law, report it to the FDA through the REMS program, so the, um, the, um, uh, you know, the data will get pulled from uh, the REMS uh, program and will be submitted to the FDA. To uh, summarize the uh, um, learning points of these cases, uh, in case one, uh, the chronic kidney pain case, uh, the take-home message is that if you define the indication for interventions with assist uh, aspiration, uh, usually it's a very effective mode to decrease the pain, but it also has the potential for complications of bleeding, and you have to always use the entire range of uh, possibilities that you have to uh, control the pain, uh, not just the uh, procedures. Uh, in case two, uh, the mitigation of polyuria, um, uh, the new uh, information uh, besides the fact that you have to control uh, salt intake is that hydrochlorothiazide could be an effective way to decrease the urine output by almost 25 to 30% in these patients, and that could be uh, the difference between stopping the uh, medication uh, or um, keep going on it. And then in third uh, uh, series of cases of transaminitis, the take-home message is to follow the highest law of who is at high risk of uh, um, going to liver uh, failure and monitor them very closely and assess the um, um, likelihood of tolvaptone or another cause of liver um, dysfunction in these patients to make the right decision about uh, stopping or continuing the treatment. Uh, I hope that these cases are helpful uh, for your clinical practice and uh, thank you very much for your uh, attention. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Novus Medical Education and Medical Education Resources and is supported by an independent educational grant from Atsuka America Pharmaceutical Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.